150 years ago, he would have some very demeaning things to say about your Christian faith. He would call you naive and gullible and stupid and unscientific and superstitious. Could you take that? Yep, there you go, all right, way to go. That's all right. Today, secular humanists, racist, hater, and dangerous. You realize that there are all kinds of people saying that about you right now? You, innocent little person sitting out there? That people say that about you for what you believe? Rosaria Butterfield, 20 years ago, kind of sets the stage for this, uh, she captures this foreboding way of looking at Christians. She was a lesbian feminist activist, English professor at Syracuse, and she was kind of studying this odd tribe of people called Christians. She actually had dinner with this older Christian couple for uh, years. And she said, I'm not the enemy, I'm on the side of the truth, right? I'm dealing here with people who are trying to limit my civil rights. And she said, I was on the side of social justice, reparations for the disempowered, racial reconciliation, equitable inclusion for all. I'm on the side of the right, she said, until she then this some time later. Now, the text before us is an example of how secular people attack the Christian faith and the integrity of the Bible. So I want you to stand. We're going to read the first few verses of this and then try to work through it and try to understand exactly what's being said here. This is 1 Peter uh, 2, beginning in verse 18. This is the text I've been given, so you can feel sorry for me on this one, all right? <laughs> Servants, be subject to your masters. You know the word there? despotes, despot, with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, and you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Father, open our eyes to this passage and to the rest of this passage as it unfolds and uh, teach us what you want us to learn and uh, drill down into the practicalities of it eventually for us in our hearts to ask us really where we stand with Jesus Christ and with living a faithful life in this world. We give you the glory with uh, all praise in Jesus' name, amen. Now, if you were a secular person, you kind of see the point a little bit. Here, Peter seems to accept the institution of slavery. Uh, now, the word there is oiketai, which is uh, like they're house servants, but make no mistake, in the ESV, the, the sort of the commentary in this says, these people were slaves. They were considered property. 
And actually one fourth of the population of the Roman Empire was, were probably slaves. This is a massive reality in the Roman world. And he is telling them uh, here to put up with harsh treatment, uh, beatings. Now, if you're a uh, social justice person, this kind of riles you up, right? These weren't employees, they weren't merry maids. They were chattel property. Now, they had it better than a lot of slaves uh, because they worked in homes and in houses, but nevertheless, uh, they were still under someone's authority, the despotes, the master who might beat them. And furthermore, he tells them to endure this mistreatment. So does the Bible just accept the status quo? You know, does it, does it just side with the powerful here, right? Does it affirm the institution of slavery and turn a blind eye to injustices? And, uh, you know, some of you say, well, America was a Christian nation, it was founded on Christian principles, and you, you push that, you push that, and then someone can come back and say to you, but then why was slavery so uh, common, and why was it so proliferated in the 17 and 1800s? Why, why did Christian people uh, put up with that? Would you have an answer for that? You say, well, we don't want to talk about this. Well, don't be a Christian dodo bird. This is the cultural moment in which you live. And you have to think about these things. Now, how do we answer that? Well, there are so many heinous sins in the Roman Empire. So many things that were wrong about that culture and that, that system. And neither the apostles nor Jesus addressed those things directly. You say, well, why not? Didn't they care? Well, here's, here's the core of it. And there's a lot of things you could say about the kind of slavery this was. In fact, you know, this wasn't a racial slavery. Most of these slaves in the Roman Empire were white people. It wasn't just a racial thing. Here, here's the core of what I would say to you. And, and, and this is important because this, it ties into your life. The Christian gospel wasn't designed to force political or social revolution. The Christian gospel is a spiritual revolution from the inside out. It's not from the outside in. Forcing. It's a revolution from the inside out. Now, there are some profound and stunning things that the Bible says that are very radical about people's equality. I'm going to show you some of these verses up here. Take a look at Galatians 3.28, this is what Paul says in reference to people, there is neither Jew nor Greek. I mean, that, that's explosive. The Jews and the Greeks hated each other. Neither slave nor free. Are you kidding me? Uh, all, the, all the Roman scholars and the Greek scholars says slaves have no rights. They're not people. There's no slave or free in Christ. There's no male or female. Whatever subjection females felt, he said, it's, it's eliminated. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. To call a slave man and a free man one in Christ is absolutely radically profound. Uh, there's other verses. Here, there is not Greek and Jew and circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all 
and in all. The implications of the Christian faith are radically powerful in understanding that people are made in the image of God and all of these people shared the same spiritual and legal rights. That was unheard of in the ancient world. And yet that's the teaching of the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 12, 13, for in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and all made to drink of one spirit. If you're a, you're a slave, you're not a, you're not a property, you're not chattel, you're a human being on equal terms with anyone else that exists in the world. That's the essence, the implications of the Christian faith. See, Christians don't see class, race, ethnicity, economic divisions. And so let me just say, if, if there's prejudice in your heart toward people, I realize there are people that are hard to deal with. They frustrate the living daylights out of you. But if there is a sort of a, a you know, in, inward, bitter prejudice toward someone, you've got to confess that. Because as Christians, you're not entitled to think that way. It's these kinds of truths that if seriously applied would dissolve the evil of slavery. In fact, Wilberforce made these arguments um, in England when slavery was finally abolished. He said, listen, we're all, we're all image bearers of God. Nobody's better than anybody else. Jesus' own example of embracing the disenfranchised, the woman at the well, he broke through about seven cultural barriers to talk to this woman. The, the, the disciples were shocked because he saw the value of a human soul. When Paul sent Onesimus, the runaway slave, back to Philemon, um, Philemon had run away and Onesimus was sent back to him and uh, Paul says, for this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a little while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord? Here's, here's a slave that now says he's on equal footing with his master. That is huge in New Testament thinking. In other words, the Christian message doesn't overthrow social evil, but it undermines it. Now, why did Paul tell slaves then to submit to ill treatment? Let me, let me give you... You know, and some of these uh, evil men, and then the word there for like a crooked master is scolios. You know, we get a word scoliosis from that, like this back curvature. These people are crooked. I, I think that there's an apologetic point. What does that mean? It's the defense of the gospel. How powerful when a believer responds with forgiveness and grace in the midst of harsh treatment. How powerful. Other slaves would say, don't you hate the master? And, and, and this Christian believer would say, no, I, I pray for him. I even forgive him because my hope is in the Lord. It's not in him. How powerful. There's no exact social situation like this today, but the closest it comes is to, to have some kind of a uh, unreasonable boss, like a supervisor. Any of you have people like that? You know, 
I hope your supervisor isn't here when you raise your hand you know, and say, yeah, that, see that guy over there? That, that's him right there. Everybody has some dumb supervisor somewhere in their, in their lives. And I, wanna, I just want to say to you, you need to get off the, the merry-go-round of, of gossip and criticism in your office. If you're, if you're working somewhere, why don't you as a believer get off the gossip trail and just say, you know what? And, and people will not like you if you do that. They will think you're, uh, you know, you're not a team player. But you're different because you have a master and a king. Other people just have themselves. They're the only defense they have is themselves. You have, you have a God in heaven. So get off the merry-go-round and try to say, you know, I'm, I'm not going to go down that road. That's just destructive. I'd encourage you to do that. Now, some years ago when our son was in Germany, I took two of my children to uh, Auschwitz in Poland. And one of the cells uh, memorializes a Polish priest named Maximilian Kolbe. The Nazis had selected 10 men from some retribution purpose to go into a starvation cell, and basically we get starved to death over a you know, two or three or four week period, no food, no water. So one of these prisoners started crying. Uh, he said, I have a wife and I have sons. And so the priest went to the commandant and said, I'll take his place. He agreed to do that. So Colby went into the cell with these other nine men and he consoled them as they all started dying. Now, there's a lot of lessons in there about giving your life up for someone, but, but, but the point is, here's a, here's a man who offered hope in the midst of chaos. He says, I'm willing to suffer mistreatment, and that raised the spirits of lots of people. You see, we, we call people who are willing to endure suffering on behalf of others heroes. And all those guards and all those officers, all those people that did those terrible things, they're in the dustbin of history, and right now there's a monument to Maximilian Kolbe in that cell in Auschwitz. Because people will not forget him. Because he said, I am willing to undergo mistreatment for the sake of others. I think that's the apologetic value of people submitting to things that are very, very hard. Now, the second reason we would call Christological, which simply means Christ-centered, what Peter goes on to say here is that this is exactly what Jesus did. He endured terrible, terrible, terrible suffering, and it was all unjust. This is what your Savior did for you. Now, in the time we have left, let me look at three key words in this passage. Let's look at verse 20, 21 here says this, for to this you've been called, because Christ himself also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. The first word is suffering. Suffering. The entire book of 1 Peter is laced with themes of suffering. It begins in verse 6 with saying, you know, you undergo various trials. 
In the middle of the book, in, in chapter four, he says, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal that's come among you. The very end of the book, it, it's the, the benediction to the book. He says, after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace will himself restore you and confirm and strengthen and establish you after you have suffered for a little while. The whole book is about suffering. Now, there's reasons people suffer. A lot of reasons are self-inflicted. You do stupid things. Anybody here ever do something really stupid? And you're suffering for it now? You're facing the consequences you know, right now? And let me remind you, if you do something sinfully stupid, there's, there's ample grace to forgive you, but you're, you're still going to suffer consequences. Consequences and forgiveness aren't the same. If you jump off a tall roof, you can be forgiven. You're still broken. Other people suffer through the conditions of life. Sickness, financial woes, relational failure, death. We have people here that have suffered a lot because they've lost loved ones. And we will continue to do that. And life's full of pain, right? But that's not the kind of suffering that's mentioned here. There, there's a third type of suffering, and that's suffering because you're a Christian. Because you have taken a stand for biblical truth or faith in Jesus. Uh, David talked a couple of weeks ago about the police chief. He, on his own time, he goes to a Franklin Graham event, and he you know, shares his story, and he's being crucified now. There's people that say, you, you're a threat to our welfare simply because you're a Christian. Uh, years ago, we had the uh, uh, secretary of DCF, who was a member of our church, and uh, he was appointed by Governor Bush, and he was here for some time. His name was Jerry Regeer. And um, before he became DCF director, he wrote a paper when he was in, he was a crew staff member, he wrote a paper on child discipline in which he talked about the proper limits and, and constraints of, of corporal discipline. And that paper got released, and man, the hounds were out to get him. Here he is, the director of DCF, talking about spanking people. Well, Jerry didn't apply that in the... In the in, in the agency, it wasn't what they did. You don't, you don't spank foster children. I don't know what the rules are. <laughs> I don't know the rules. I mean, I'm just saying, uh, those of you that have adopted, those of you that have foster kids, are you allowed to spank them? Let me, who can speak of that? You know, I don't think you are. There you go. They, they wanted this guy's scalp, you understand? Why? Because he, he held positions that would be compatible with biblical truth. It's not that you love Jesus, it's that you, you have views that seem incompatible with people who are out to get you. And this is just going to go on more and more in the culture. So, as American Christians, I would, I would say to you, you need to discard... All this notion, some of these silly, supercilious people that talk about the be your best life now and 
you know, there's all this prosperity and you're happy, clappy. Jesus brings the good stuff and he's like a candy dispenser. And, you know, he just gives you all this. Jesus called people to suffering. Now, that's a, listen, that's not very user-friendly. That's a downer. But if you, are you going to take the Bible seriously or you just want to live in your own little dream world? What do you want to do? So the question to ask is, how much does my faith in Christ really matter to me? How much does, how much does believing in Jesus matter? It, does, it, does it matter because it's convenient, or does it matter because it's true? What matters to you? Another way to put it would be, at what point would I say, this is no longer worth it? Hey, look, I've lived 71 years in relative peace. Nobody's really hassled me. You think at an age 71, I want to start getting hassled from my, my beliefs? Do you think that that's fun? Is that fun for anybody? I mean, I can barely get up in the morning, let alone fight the, you know, fight the <laughs> battles of the world, right? I don't want to be hassled by anybody. So what, what am I willing to stand for? I mean, Jesus talked about this in, in Matthew chapter 13. He talked about the parable of the sower. He said, there are people who endure for a while, but when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. Is that going to be you? you say, well, I, don't really, I never really believe that stuff. You've got to ask some really deep questions about, now, I don't know what any of this means for, for you personally, but is, is your, does your faith matter to you enough to say, whatever happens, I'm not going to give up? The second key word in this, as we look down through this passage, is trusting. Look at, look at verses uh, 22 and 23. He committed no sin... Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. The word is trust. Entrusting. It's not the word for faith. It's a word for uh, committed himself to. Who did he commit himself to? He committed himself to the one who judges justly. Uh, Jesus endured terrible mistreatment. No, no one in history has been treated like him. Mocked, hated, ridiculed, slandered, hated, cruelty. Compared to the character of the person. <laughs> this perfect person. And so for a minute, I want you to ponder just how fleshly and carnal and sinful your reactions are to people with whom you disagree. Uh, the evangelical church is being torn apart by differences of opinion on things that are not really spiritual or theological or more political. Big name churches David Platt's church, McLean Bible Church, is going through hell 
want you to think about how you respond and disagree with politicians, politics, vaccine, mask mandates. I want you to really think about how you respond to that stuff. I don't care what side of the coin you're on. It's not, that's not my point. My point is, how do you respond to people who are opposed to what you think and, and believe? Are you bitter and angry at government leaders, school administrators, church leaders, neighbors? You think they're blatant idiots? And you're churned up on the inside over all this? That's, Jesus didn't do that. When he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. When he was accused, he just kept silent. He just, he said, what he, what he said is, God, you're my defender. You're my protector. I trust you. Do you do that? Jesus had the right, the power, the authority to uh, strike back, eliminate all these people, and he, instead he just died on the cross for your sins. Listen, I've had a hard enough time loving Christians. I'm going to preach here one more time on January 9th, and I'm going to tell you everything that I want, wish I would have said in the last... <laughs> in the last th 37 years, you're going to hear... You're gonna, you're going to hear it all, then I'm out the door. Uh, you can't get me anymore. <laughs> I had a hard enough time, but, and I learned these lessons early in my Christian ministry. I, I've told you, I've stomping around here with uh, these church members in my first little church, and they were just so unreasonable, and I'm bitter, and I'm huffing and puffing, and Ron Schwartz was a guy that I discipled at the University of Florida, and he was in seminary, and then he was in Minoy. And so we're driving home from this meeting, and I'm talking about how stupid these church members are. And, you know, and uh, he said to me, you probably heard me say that, he said, uh, let me ask you this, what, what degree did you get at Trinity? You know, I said, well, I got an MDiv. What does that mean? Well, it means I'm supposed to know stuff more than these dumb people, you know, at least, right? He says, let me tell you what your degree is. It's one thing. It's a servant's degree. Your MDiv is a servant's degree, so why don't you start loving these people instead of resenting them? I want to tell you, that was uh, how long ago? I'll never forget that. Do people ever say things to you that you go, whoa? That was one of those moments. And I had a woman named Gail. She was really hard to love. She once criticized me because I didn't fix her washing machine. And I told her I didn't have that course in seminary. <laughs> and she made lots of criticisms, and she was sort of haughty, and her children were out of control. They were, like, really out of control. Plus, she smoked, you know. And I just thought to myself, you know, I just wish this woman would get put in her place and I could just see herself. I just want her to grovel before me and say, oh, you've been right all along, you know, I just want to go draw. And the Lord said to me, uh, through, through the, you know, my conscience, he goes, would that make you feel better? And I said, yes. 
And then I said, no, not really. What does it prove that I prove her wrong? Where does that really get me? You want to, are you out there to prove people wrong? Where's that going to get you? Where does that get you as a person? Because you've proved somebody wrong. Man, aren't you great? You've just trusted in your flesh. What Jesus did is entrusted himself to the, to the Father. And this wasn't just passive resignation. Okay, I'll just put up with whatever. It was an act of trust of saying, I'm looking to you. He didn't give up the desire for justice or for resolution. He just laid it in the hands of his heavenly Father and said, you will take care of this. And that's what Christians do if you're going to live a consistent Christian life. Rosaria Butterfield said later after she became a Christian that these attacks against us, the slander and the, all the crap and the stuff you go through is, is all meant to do one thing, to make you more like Jesus. And that's why you're alive. If, 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 if you're not here for that reason, you're here for the wrong reason. You're here to become more like Jesus. And that's it. Now one final thing in the few minutes that we have. There's a couple other words here. Look at verses 24 and 25. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you've been healed, for you were straying like sheep, and now you've returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Lest people think that the death of Jesus was just an example, he now drills down and says, no, it wasn't an example. Peter says, he bore our sins in his body. He died as a sin bearer. This is an atoning, vicarious, sacrifice, propitiatory event where the justice of God and the wrath of God is satisfied in Christ. He never wants us to forget this. And this forgiveness is always and only outside in. Christianity moves from the inside out when it's applied, but forgiveness is always from the outside in. There's nothing in you that makes God go, oh, aren't you wonderful? It's alien righteousness that comes into you from the outside, and when that comes into you by grace, there. And then it begins moving from the inside out as you live your life out in sanctification. And you'll notice that this is meant to have a huge impact in how you live. This isn't just a theory. Oh, Jesus died for my sins and I live any way I want? No. You die to sin and live to righteousness. The, the true Christian will never be perfect. He's always going to the, the, the habitual desire to continue to sin is broken in a true Christian. A woman came to me, a person came to me uh, recently troubled by a, a particular temptation that kind of kept hounding her, and she maybe concluded she wasn't a Christian. I just asked her some questions. I said, does this temptation trouble you? She goes, oh, yes. Uh, do you see resistance in your soul toward it? In other words, is there a fight going on? And so, oh, yes. Do you ask the Lord to, to kind of help you? Oh, yes. I said, well, to me, that's a sign of life. <laughs> see, non-Christians don't care. They don't care about their sins. They just sin, and they go, and then they justify it. A person who is dealing with this in battle 
is most likely a believer. Try to give her assurance. I said, that's what Christians do. You're just experiencing the fight of faith. And Peter reminds them that, you know, there was a time you just walked away from God. You strayed. That's, that's kind of a mild term. You stray is just kind of walk away and, you know, kind of straying. The sheep are so dumb and blind, they, they, they have no idea the danger they're going into. That's the illustration he's using here. They just, they just wander into danger. And you're never going to come to Christ if you don't realize what sort of perilous danger you're in. You know, if you're here and you're, you're kind of on the fence and you don't know where you stand with, with Jesus, I, if you don't realize that, that you're in the, the clutches of a, a ravenous beast that will destroy your life and your soul for eternity, you have no reason to come to Christ. You're going to make it on your own. He says, now you've returned, you've come back. And that's all by grace. And then he says, Jesus is your shepherd, your appointment. It's the word for pastor. He guards and guides and feeds and leads. He's your overseer. It's the word episkopos. We get a word episcopal from this word, meaning looking intently at something. Jesus is looking intently at your life and at your soul. And he says, I'm here to protect you. Now, there's a lot of you here that are very successful. You know, in government, law, medicine, business, education, public safety, sales, you're a business owner, you're a loving parent, military, maybe. But I would encourage you to see yourself as a two-year-old, a toddler. I heard yesterday there was a toddler that wanted his parents, they couldn't find him, and they found him deceased by a drainage ditch somewhere in Georgia. It's terrible. You always have to keep your eyes on toddlers. We have two-year-olds. We understand that. You're always doing that. Right? Because they get themselves in such trouble. You would get yourself in a lot of trouble if you weren't being looked after and cared about and loved and nurtured by the shepherd and overseer of your soul. None of us like to be controlled. We don't want people to tell us what to do, except if it's a loving father that says, you know what, I have your best interest in mind. Would you just listen to me? Come to me, would you trust me? Because I'm all you have. He's the only one that would be there at the end for you. Everybody else will fail you. Everybody else will leave. Everybody else will die. But the overseer and shepherd of your soul will never depart you. And that's why we're here this morning to tell him thank you for his amazing grace. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you so much for your love. We thank you for this passage, as hard as it is. It's still uh, the word of God, faithful and true, inspired, authoritative. And we give you glory. We say uh, you're to be honored and praise for all that you do. Help us to learn uh, what this passage means and to follow the example of our Savior and to relish his atoning death on our behalf, knowing now that he looks over us, he guides us into good places, and for that we give him the greatest praise and glory and honor. Thank you for this day, for the richness of your mercy. And we pray it in Christ's name.